Welcome to the Say What You Mean podcast. We're here at Elliot Sharp's studio on the Lower East Side, and Elliot has a guitar with him, and we're going to talk about everything that uh, he's never said in a podcast before. Yes, I hope since I don't really know that I've done any, I think that's a pretty safe assumption, <laughs> at least from the interviewee, and I've, uh, in my capacity working for Art on Air, through WPS1, our web radio station, I got to interview a lot of people as an interviewer, which is a nice position to be in sometimes. Well, we'll turn the tables yeah. on you then. Okay. Well, we were just talking about how uh, these days you consider yourself more a composer than a guitarist, and it's made you a better guitar player. Absolutely. Well, anything that improves your ear and your musicianship will improve any aspect of your musicianship. I, I mean, really, I, I've considered myself a composer primarily, but didn't speak of it so much. Now, Francis Marie Witte, the fantastic cellist and friend of mine, said to me, you know, Elliot, you'll never be taken seriously as a composer as long as someone ever sees you with an electric guitar in your hands. <laughs> so let this be a cautionary tale to uh, other composer guitarists. You know, in the 80s, people talked about the new era of the composer-performer. But the fact is, the structure that's set up to promote music and disseminate it is very conservative and it's not going to change that easily. People want their composers to act a certain way, dress a certain way, live a certain way, and they want their guitarists to do likewise. Interesting, and you feel that's still true? Oh, absolutely, maybe even more so. I think mm. the way the music business, quote unquote, has gone, everything is much more genre-fied. There's many more walls up than there used to be. And in fact, what are the walls keeping out or keeping in? Just the few pennies, so, you know? <laughs> Yeah. And, but the people are very, I think that's what turns out, people are very tied to their turf and want to maintain their turf and protect it. Yeah. Well, I consider you as, be, as being one of the founders of what we could loosely term uh, New York-based experimental music and guitar uh, movement, which began, well, here in the 70s and, and earlier. Yeah. And uh, so I'm particularly interested in your perspective, not only as a player, but almost as a historian, because you've seen a lot come and go. So I'd be interested to hear you talk a bit about uh, the genesis of your style, or I should say styles, mm -hmm. of guitar playing uh, from the mid-70s when, when we first met, and, and how it's metamorphosized and how you saw yourself then and how you see yourself now as a player and composer. Sure. Well, you know, there's a famous Salvador Dali quote where he says, the only difference between myself and a madman is that I am not mad. And I've mutated that to say the only difference between my music and pop music is that my music isn't popular. So, <laughs> you know, I've never, I mean, I grew up listening to Top 40 radio and especially in the mid-60s Yardbirds and Mike Bloomfield with the Butterfield Band, Jimi Hendrix came along, you know, Jefferson Airplane. All of that stuff had great guitar. And then in 1968, I had a gig, which was when I started playing guitars. I mean, my father had an unplayable harmony that he would plunk on occasionally. And it was, I mean, literally, you know, action half an inch high. Mm. In 1968, I made a little money from my after-school job and bought a Hagstrom three from a friend and a little Fender amp, which I wish I still had. And uh, then that summer, I had a 
National Science Foundation grant to be a Ford Future Scientist of America because I've been a geek. Right. And I spent most of my time in the lab at Carnegie Mellon working on, I mean, I did my work for the scientists that I needed to do, but I also was building fuzz boxes and playing with seven head tape decks and got a gig midnight to 4 a.m. on the radio station at, in Pittsburgh, WRCT. And they had an incredible library. There was amazing stuff coming out then. The ESP records, the Deutsche Grammophon avant-garde series, the Nonsuch Explorer series, the, the Imperial records that were in Psychedelia from Texas. Just tons of stuff, and I played all and listened, and that would get me to the library to read books, Harry Parge, which about Stockhausen's and August. It all, you know, kind of discovering uh, books about Cecil Taylor and Ornette Coltrane, it all just sort of came together in this like kind of giant fireball that hit me in the head that summer. Yeah, but as a, so how old were you in 1916? So you were into this music of everybody you've just mentioned, I would consider to be on the experimental, uh, you know, so-called avant-garde side back then. As a young man, you were immediately attracted to this music. Well, also because of my science geekdom, my favorite reading material was science fiction. Uh -huh. You know, any kind of speculative uh, fiction, really. And from that sideways to more theoretical, scientific things, space travel, you know, was in the air in the 50s and early 60s. And the music that went with that to me was not, I wanted science fiction music. I didn't want, I mean, of course I loved the Rolling Stones and, you know, all that stuff, but yeah, I, I, I wanted to hear something else, which is when psychedelia came along. I said yes. When had, when I heard "Are You Experienced" by Hendrix, it was you know, I mean, of course there was great guitar before, and I think Jeff Beck pushed the envelope more than anyone else in terms of kind of rock guitar in the '60s. But when Hendrix came along, it just blew it all. Right. And that was. So you ended up on the Lower East Side in the... 79, I moved here. In 79, and were part of what was a burgeoning scene uh, back then, and, and as I mentioned before, became kind of one of the central figures in what was going on. So as a guitar player, what were the types of gigs you were doing, going out and doing at that well, time, and how has it kind of all led to who you are today. Well, it's funny because when I came to New York, it was really hard to get a gig playing my own music. Of course, no one knew I was. I had a few press clippings from a year living in Massachusetts and my time in Buffalo, but, you know, that's not really going to get you a gig. So I worked as a bass player. I mean, I could read music. I liked playing bass. I would play bass in bands occasionally. I had this 
$99, which at that time was a lot of money, right. knock off of a jazz bass that sounded quite good. And I immediately would work. Occasionally I would get gigs playing guitar, saxophone, accompanying dancers. I mean, I, I would sometimes play five gigs in a night. And I have to say the money is not that much better these days than it was back then, if you want to play these little gigs. But I might, I was working as a bar cleaner in a disco in Midtown, and I'd get out of work and maybe accompany some dancers. Then I might accompany a singer at like a restaurant or a bar gig for a set playing standards. Then I might have a gig with a band playing bass, a showcase. Then I might play at a punk club later on. Then I might go to an after hours club and do a set of my own thing. So but you had, uh, you know, we met, and I don't think you remember this because uh, we've talked about this before. Yeah. We both went to Bard College. I, right. We met because you came up to do a workshop yes, there. Yes, I remember that. And, and we improvised together um, 1980, mm -hmm. I think it might have been. 79. Yeah. And I remember at that time um, that you had already forged this, you know, really... Uh, experimental approach to the guitar. If I if I had had to to pigeonhole you back then, I would have said that you'd been listening to Derek Bailey. Well, Derek certainly had been an influence, but it was a parallel. I didn't want to, you know, for me, in, the important thing and the difference between what I was doing and a lot of the improvising scene was the notion of rhythm. To me, it always was pulse based, and I had always been thinking about a kind of <coughs> sound oriented group that would be pulse based yet. The, in terms of bringing in noise and overtones and sonic spectra that you wouldn't find in typical rock music. But when I heard Miles on the Corner, I said, that was, that's really close to it. You know, that to me was mm. a real signpost. Very early Steve Reich music, I, you know, later, even by 19, oh, what was it, uh, 1975, I took a workshop with him when I was living in Buffalo. Mm. It was him, Cage, Earl Brown, and Christian Wolf, fantastic and diverse group of people. This is the Junior Buffalo series. And Reich, his early music, I thought, was absolutely fantastic because it was had an acoustic uh, property to it. You know, it was based on acoustic phenomena. It was pulse-based. He was influenced by African music and gamelan music. Mm. Later, it became a little too soft and uh, warm and fuzzy. And, uh -huh. But uh, still, you know, I, as, a, as a pioneer of that, I, and as someone who was looking for something that was pulse-based. He was certainly one of the signposts. Terry Riley, I would say, that was much more the, the uh, avatar of that. Yeah. So you're, take us back to that time. What are the things that you're working on and developing as a player that are building the sound? Well, when I was first learning to play, I mean, I started out, going right to prepared guitar in 1968 and experimenting with fuzz and tape, but I really didn't have very much technique, you know. I could struggle through a bar chord. In fact, I've told this story a million times when I met Jimi Hendrix at Manny's Music. Oh, I haven't heard this in, one. In uh, the summer of 1969. I had, I would often, if I had any, any time, hitchhike down to the city from upstate where my, I lived with my parents and wander around the city, find like used record stores and go to Manny's and gawk at the guitars because I mean I could barely play and I didn't have any money so but I went in one morning it was 10 in the morning they had just opened and I pointed to the cheapest Gibson acoustic guitar they had and I was sitting down playing and playing the chords to Gloria and there in front of me were gold boots and turquoise pants 
And I looked up, and there's Jimi Hendrix smiling down at me. And I went, a hi, and he smiled and goes, a hi. I put the guitar down immediately, needless to say. <laughs> and he was trying out fuzz boxes, and I just sat there at his feet. Well, I didn't want to bug him. I sat right. about 10 feet away hmm. and just watched him play, you know, trying out different fuzz boxes. He played on Dick Cabot that night. He was playing the white SG on Dick Cabot that night. Interesting. And, what uh, a great story. So, I mean, like Hendrix trying to get with that learning blues, I was very into country blues. The things I liked about guitar right from the very beginning were things that didn't always sound like guitar. Country blues guitarists mm. were playing with a slide. They were completely going outside of Western intonation systems and turning the, gu the guitar into a voice. And that for me was a really powerful and positive thing. <laughs> scene or whatever it is but it's you couldn't call it jazz and you couldn't call it Although rock it was a close resonance to free jazz to free jazz there was no really free rock but you know the the more outside psychedelic things that the airplane were doing or mike bloomfield's band the electric flag east west set yeah. the blueprint for a lot of the psychedelic bands you can hear that dna in the grateful dead and quicksilver and the airplane a lot of the whole jam bands were influenced by this residency that the butterfield band did at the fillmore after when East West came out, and they would play multiple versions of East West, and all the San Francisco scene players were there checking it out. Interesting. Yeah, no, that was a pioneering piece of work. And then when John McLaughlin came out, I'd read about him when um, I'd uh, gotten a copy of Devotion first because that had some distribution through Alan Douglas in the U.S., and then I went from that to Extrapolation, which was completely mind blowing. Then when he joined Miles and Tony Williams, so that I had some shedding to do just to get with his technique. I mean, the, right. the and not to mention Captain Beefheart, Trotmask Replica, another right. milestone. The New Year's Eve between 1970 and 71, I just stayed up all night playing along to Bitches Brew and Trotmask Replica, trying to get the, all of that stuff under my fingers. You know. Right. So take us to the 80s. You're in the East Village you're starting to meet other people who are doing what you're doing. Um, needless to say, it's, it's changed a lot. We were talking about that as I came in and I was, because uh, your apartment is, is, you know, one of the few left uh, that musicians live in, in, in the Lower East Side. And of yeah. course, uh, back when I was growing up, this was the place that you came to hear music. So, so give us a, a brief pictorial 
of uh, those formative years of some of the gigs you'd go out and do and and uh, and how that felt. Well, even, I mean, in the 80s, in the early 80s, and when I first came here, I was interfacing more with the scene around material because I had played in a festival in Boston in 1978, the Zoo Festival, organized by Giorgio Gamelski, who sadly just passed a little while ago. Giorgio, mm. a name associated, again, with the Yardbirds, with John McLaughlin, he produced extrapolation with um, Magma and the group Turner, and then Material. So I met all those guys when they were a zoo band, uh, Michael Beinhorn and Bill Laswell and uh, Martin B.C. and Fred Maher in Boston at that gig. So when I first moved to New York, I was working on more kind of pulse-based music, dance, electronic dance music. I had a, a band together with a synthesist from the Scientific Americans. I, and we called it Human Error. And it was also very much like a strange mixture of like proto-techno and free jazz. And Wait a minute, uh, I, I have to stop a moment. You used the phrase electronic dance music from the early 80s, which is now, of course, the most popular music in the world, you could argue. Which well, I managed to find a way to not hit for it to not be popular. Incredible to me that you uh, you were, were at the leading edge of that. Well, it was, to me, just another realm to explore. And when I first got my Atari computer in 1985, I had a project called Virtual Stance that actually interfaced more with the techno scene and that morphed into tectonics in 92 and i was very involved with the jungle scene then and uh, by tectonics records actually were quite successful in that uh, kind of uh, edm or idm scene experimental dance music intelligent dance music quote unquote uh -huh. you know uh, collaborations with soul slinger who was the first jungle dj in new york so you know i would end up playing raves in brazil to 10,000 people back in those days in the 90s and that That's was, news to me. Fun. Yeah, but it's, it was kind of like an obscure corner of my activities. I always like to do interesting things, things that are not, that don't take me down the typical path. Like if you're a, a contemporary composer, you know, you have a certain trajectory that you follow. If you're an experimental guitarist or if you're a jazz guitarist, I do what I like to do and it takes me down strange pathways. And most of them are enjoyable until they're not. <laughs> Or until they disappear. That's the other speak going back to the Lower East Side. I used to be able to step out my door any time of the day or night and run into people all the time. Mm. Butch Morris lived across the street. I could always find Butch. Rebo lived up on 2nd Avenue. Uh, I could go to into Tompkins Park in the 1980s. I'd go there with my clarinet and my dog to practice and run into a million people there with their dogs. And it was, it was the gang activity had kind of subsided. It was like a, a very brief period before cracking and that the East Village was sort of lush and easygoing. Hmm. Early 80s, 79, when I moved in this building, the, the street was looked like Dresden after the war. It was mostly bombed out buildings. Our building what had wall-to-wall -wall junkies, you know, it was no heat, no hot water, practically no floors and ceilings. You know? Yeah. It was rough, but, you know, we, I mean, it, it was a building that we got from the city through a Title IX program that we were able to you know, turn it into a cooperative corporation. I was very lucky. Yeah. You know, at the time, that was a possibility. Now, certainly not. Well, I think there's something that we all miss about the neighborhood feeling that there's you used that. to have for Manhattan. But also, I don't miss that feeling of adrenaline, making it to the downstairs door without getting mugged, <laughs> yeah. making it upstairs without yeah. getting mugged, going into my apartment and not finding anyone in there waiting to mug me, <laughs> waiting to see that my windows hadn't been broken into or whatever. You know, it's a lot of... Yeah. Lot. But there was a great 
the, one of the great things about the low rent district was that there were venues, there were galleries, there were little performance spaces, there were clubs. Real estate and art have always been tied in mm. to each other. It's, a, it's an inverse relationship. Yeah. And uh, when real estate is cheap, you have artists living there, you have clubs, you have cafes. It makes life interesting. Then the people come in with their limousines and say, oh, this is so charming here. Right. <laughs> yeah. And they buy a building, you know, or a developer buys a building. And the next thing, you know, all the artists are gone. Mm. So I want to talk about a few of your projects. You Actually, it's amazing to me how many different things that you've done, and I only know probably a tenth of them. And there's everything from you know, large operatic works to solo guitar works with uh, unusual guitars. Uh, and all kinds of ensembles in between, some of which seem to be more based in technology, others in, you know, real-time uh, acoustic or semi-acoustic improvising. Sure. Maybe take two or three of those, talk about them a little, and if you would, tie one of them in to your guitar playing, and you sure. can well, play a little. The guitar playing is at the core, because, you know, when I'm sitting and, you know, thinking when I'm hearing music in my inner ears, which is really how I think of, of music, you know. And that can happen with an instrument in my hand. And the direct connection is often a guitar. I mean, I like playing horn a lot. I like playing saxophones and clarinets and played them, a clarinet especially, long before I played guitar. But there's something about the guitar, the, the layout of it and the physicality of it, a different kind of physicality than you get from the saxophone. Although I have to say, again, this circle around, Pardon me if I digress, but digression is one of my favorite uh, forms of exposition. We but, specialize uh, on, in that for yes, this podcast. The, yes, the, uh, the Society for Creative Digression. <laughs> and um, playing horn was invaluable for helping me develop a different way to phrase on guitar. You know, I always loved hearing, you know, jagged, edgy playing, but I also liked the flow. I mean, a great horn player like to hear Ornette or Coltrane or Albert Eiler, they could get a flow happening that a guitarist would not, except for someone like Hendrix, who harnessed distortion as a way of giving him greater fluidity. Can you demonstrate a little of that? Show us something that you feel connects to your horn playing. Uh, sure. Like a, I mean, an example might be like. <laughs> as a way of uh, making it a little more legato and having the notes swell up as if you're breathing into them. Mm. But uh, also, I mean, the thing about like jazz guitar, while I've always admired the technique, you know, hearing a, you know, that kind of like straight ahead phrasing never excited me. I mean, I love the harmonic uh, aspects of it, but I always wanted my phrasing to be a lot more liquid, you know, so instead of... Where I'm, I'm trying to arpeggiate and move my lines around in a, in a more freeway, not pattern-based, you know, that a guitar, like a guitarist might. Yeah, so what I'm noticing, just for those who can't see us, uh, Elliot's using a right hand with no pick, uh, and there's a lot of, um, quite a lot of what you're doing is based 
in in your right hand yeah, yeah, yeah. and in finding shapes with your left hand that are certainly work for the guitar but would be uncommon for any other instrument. Yeah, although a lot of times I'll set up a tuning. Right now I'm just using a drop D. Mm. I might set up a tuning so that I can achieve the things I want harmonically on a, in a guitaristic way. In fact, let me, let me do that. So it's, it has a, a bitonal feel. right hand from the bridge towards the neck tapping as he taps so he's he's eliciting different harmonics from the low strings mm -hmm. as he goes along uh, which is creating kind of a second melody yeah. to what the yeah. left hand is yeah. doing. Yeah. or another way to approach a similar technique changing the length of the string so that you have different harmonics as the length of the open string changes. And I, I call that the harmonic suite because you can get a very nice, like on the sequencers, like... So the tapping that you're doing is uh, uh, unique. I don't know anybody else who does it in the way that you do it. Talk about how you develop that and what it is that uh, you value about that. I mean, I've always liked being two-handed on the guitar. You know, the pick, of course, to do certain things, you can't beat it. But I also had training as a pianist. I was a classical pianist first and foremost when I was six years old. It drove me crazy. It literally gave me asthma, nearly killed me. I had to, I played a concert of Liss Hungarian Rhapsody when I was seven years old at Carnegie Recital Hall as part of a recital of all of my teachers, students, 
but the pressure of it and the pressure of school it just I mean I developed asthma and nearly died I still attribute it to the piano that might be simplistic but uh, wow. I, I, I have always associated with it and I have to do some work to uh, learn to love the piano again mm. but I like the idea of having both hands on the fretboard and when I was reading again in 1968 writings of Henry Cowell and John Cage I would fool around with tapping I had very limited technique but I would just try and I would, I would set up my guitar to feedback and I would just run both hands at random on it and then when I heard Cecil Taylor I really wanted to be able to emulate what Cecil was doing you know and so that I began to as it the first tapping stuff I did was influenced by African music <laughs> seen um, anybody emulate the sound of Cecil Taylor on the guitar like that and it totally makes sense to me because when you're using both hands you're able to create this vortex of activity that's both rhythmic and melodic that's right. very pianistic yeah and having using the double necks which I started using in 84 no, earlier, 82, I had my first double neck. And uh, then ha having the eight strings built, the first one was built, or the double necks destroyed my back, you know, both playing them in gigs and carrying around the equipment necessary for both necks. So I had the eight string solid body built, the first one by Doug Henderson in 96. And then I had the one built by Saul Cole, the hollow body. If we started talking about that in 2003 and it was ready in 2005. The eight string, be, meaning that the lower two strings are bass are, strings. Are bass strings so I have a tune range to of different things. Hmm. The kind of standard tuning is low E and low A, but very often I'll bring them down to low C, low C, low B flat, low A flat, C A flat, different tunings depending on the music. And, and Cole stands up really well to different tunings. You know, it's just such a beautiful instrument. I mean, this does too. The neck in this is massive. I have Carlo Greco made the neck for this eight string. And uh, you can see the... Yeah, exactly. Massive. Uh, do you, would you care to play this yeah, for a moment? Absolutely. Bartolini jazz bass pickups and I love the sound of them they're super hi-fi and it's set up with a strat five-way switch of this Doug Henderson machined this bridge out of a block of brass 
I mean, it's a beautiful guitar. He found the maple on an old dresser, and he built a few guitars from it. And the body is Limba, uh, a.k.a. Corina. Hmm. And the neck uh, that uh, Carlo Greco made is from very nicely flamed maple and an ebony fingerboard. I like the ebony fingerboard because I knew that I would do a lot of tapping yeah. with this instrument and it had, gives me that uh, bright attack. <laughs> Actually, <laughs> Nels Klein will rarely play a guitar that doesn't have that. He's he's very partial to that. Oh so yeah, well that jazz master has a nice long string length. Yeah. Speaking of um, of Nels, tell us about some of the collaborations you've done with other guitar players and and what you value in those and what you look for um, in that in those situations. Well, first of all, it's a conversation. You know, I mean you're playing with another guitarist and you're really talking with them. Maybe you're talking about music, maybe you're talking about politics, the weather, you know, but something, maybe you're just gibberish, talking gibberish, but that can be fun too. It's always with people that I have some sort of social relationship with. You know, it's with friends getting together and playing. Sometimes it's with people that I don't know at all, which is also interesting. What do you talk about? I played a gig in Berlin a couple of weeks ago with a young Finnish guitarist, Marcus Pisoni, very talented. He'd come to visit me a couple of years before in New York, and the opportunity we came up to play, so we do. I mean, range over the years, it's really so many of my guitar buddies, you know, playing with Nels, of course, with Mark Ribot, with Henry Kaiser, with Sonny Chirac, with Derek, um, well, David Fulton, one of my oldest friends, and a fantastic musician, um, Mary Halverson. Zachary Pruitt, another very talented player. Yeah. I mean, uh, on and on. There's so yeah. Many. There's so many. I, yeah. I, I hate to start making lists because I'll know I'll, I'll leave somebody, leave somebody out. out. Sure. Well, talk a little bit about um, some of the work you've done as a composer uh, without the guitar. And some of the... I'm especially interested in hearing you talk about some of your larger form works that are quite ambitious. Well... You know, I, as I said, it, the hearing comes from the inner ear. And sometimes you manifest it with a guitar, like I might take a chord such as this. And say, how will this sound played by 30 strings and mm. orchestrated? Or imagine 30 strings each playing different rhythms interlocked and then just write it out. I mean, I don't write with an instrument. When I'm notating music, I just sit at the computer and uh, just try and write it. Some of it comes from what I'm 
remembering. I mean, a lot of my real composing gets done sitting up three in the morning, you know, getting having those three a.m. thoughts and return it to music. And I think that we're walking. Uh, we live down near the East River, and walking to my studio if I have the time, I'll walk along the East River, and that always generates something interesting. When our kids were born, I would go down every morning, sunrise with a big thermos of coffee, and wheel the kids in their stroller down to the, uh, they were babies then, down to the river and just sit and drink coffee and listen to the sound of sunrise. And that would generate some things. The orchestra piece on Corlier's Hook was pretty much written in that manner. Tell us about that record. I don't it's, know that it, one. The, the, it just came out on Starkland a few months ago together with a piece called The Boreal, performed by Jack Quartet, and a piano piece perform, performed by Jenny Lynn, and an, a string orchestra piece called Proof of Erdos, performed by a string orchestra version of Orchestra Carbon. I just called all my favorite string players, members of Jack Quartet and Sirius and Flux Quartet and some freelancers, and they were all part of this. Mm. So uh, on Corlier's Hook is really like a translation, and I think of composing music as a translation of the creative impulse Whatever that is, you don't, you can't define it. It happens, and then you have to think about how is it defined. And for me, sometimes it may come out on a guitar, sometimes it may come out on a saxophone, it may come out writing for a string quartet, writing for an orchestra. Orchestra, I, I, I love because it's like an incredibly powerful synthesizer with an operating system that was unfortunately written in the 17th century. Uh -huh. So I mean, you have, <laughs> you have to hack it. You know, if, you, if you're going to make a work, you have to write little black dots. And those little black dots have to be in exactly the right place if you want the orchestra to make the sound you want. You know, yeah. so it's it's a, a very sometimes tedious practice, but I, I, it's nothing like hearing a full orchestra. have a strong feeling for cognition and the mysteries of cognition and how that leads towards and into sound. Well, the notion of consciousness, how it connects also, and it's dangerous to get philosophical because sometimes it sounds like gibberish, of course, yeah. or it sounds like religion, but this notion of mathematical infinity. A lot of my philosophical tendencies 
get satisfied by studying mathematics and contemporary physics because they put phenomena that are beyond human understanding in terms of processes that we can comprehend. Sometimes it'll leap of faith because some of the you know, post-quantum physics sounds like uh, Tibetan Buddhism. <laughs> True. And, and I think that's not surprising, really. I couldn't agree with you more. But, uh, you know, just this notion of thinking about who we are and where we are, and then how do you translate this infinity to sound, to one particular sound at one moment, you know? How do you engender the feeling in the listener that you feel in yourself when you're contemplating this sound, you know, this sound that you can't even understand because it's not a physical sound? How do you bring it down? Maybe you're, tra you're transposing it, you know, 20 octaves down into the, you know, to our plane, or, or 20 octaves, or an infinite number of octaves up from the Big Bang, you know. Mm. There are those who would say that our whole physical manifestation here is just harmonics from the Big Bang, you know. Mm. So you use mathematics sometimes in your writing. Sometimes mechanically, well. sometimes yeah. generating tables of numbers, looking at proportions. In 1985, I was working a lot with Fibonacci numbers, and used that to write a string quartet and an orchestra piece, and also translated that tuning to guitar for the records, uh, the first carbon record, the first few carbon records, really. Carbon, Marco Polo's Argali, and Fractal. And do you feel that those processes worked to oh, yeah. generate what you you heard? Because this, this first, was useful. It, I didn't hear it first. It was, it was a curiosity about using the mathematics to create a tuning and create these rhythms. And then I tried it, and I liked the way it sounded. Mm. This actually sounds like something I've never heard before but it's something I want to hear more. And so then I began to explore and systematize it so it could become you know, part of my uh, finger language, my muscle language on the instrument. You're using all kinds of source material, emotional, cognitive, uh, mechanical, yeah. to generate music, so... And blues. Uh, I can't leave out... I, I'll get and the history of the guitar. Sure, yeah. I, can't, I have to go back to country blues. That Hubert Sumlin. And well, and Hubert, you know, I mean, when I was listening... You know, through Yardbirds and Butterfield, I finally got to Muddy Waters and Howlin' Wolf. And I listened to these records in high school. You could get all those chess records for 99 cents each yeah. in the bargain bin. And, you know, we'd never list who the musicians were. And, and Wolf always had the greatest guitar right. in there. And some of it was Jody Williams, but a lot of it, the most pungent stuff, was Hubert. And when I finally found out, you know, who Hubert was and sought out other recordings, in 1983, I was visiting Chicago and went to a little bar because Hubert was playing there and I didn't, I didn't want to bug him. He was playing pool between sets but got to chat with him a bit and uh, talk about guitars. And he's just the sweetest guy in the world. Mm. He was playing a Telecaster that night. And then 11 years later through the singer Queen Esther we ended up backing up Hubert at the Knitting Factory, at the old Knitting Factory. Wow. And uh, I mean I couldn't believe I was standing on stage with Hubert. Yeah. You know and of course he would he would laugh at me. I'd play one of his licks, you know, like you couldn't avoid it, you know. Right. And he would go, "Yep, I wrote that." You know. Yeah. But we got we got to be buddies, and we played together a lot. We took him on tour in Europe and in England. Uh, he would come over here to the studio. We loved drinking coffee, you know. He played on a bunch of terraplane records. Yeah. I mean, really, just the greatest guy. So, so it's the, this variety that just that's so intriguing because uh, with your mindset, you'll never run out of. Uh, ideas or things to explore? Well, you know, we, we get into, there's a fine line between style and self-parody, I've often said. 
And sometimes you do get into a rut, no matter what. And you know, one always have to has to find ways to get out of a rut, as a composer, as a guitarist. You know, it's very easy to do to learn to do something well, and then, you know, I, I again one of my cliches: the worst thing that, that can happen to a musician is success, right? Because then you're under this incredible pressure. Hmm. to keep doing that same thing. So I, I've, I've managed to avoid that <laughs> so far, although I've managed to survive. You know, I Well, but that's the, the wonderful thing about your career is that, yeah, granted, um, you're not a, a household name, but you've been able to find all kinds of different ways to continue to make music and occasionally get paid for it for many, many years, which is fantastic mm -hmm. because... Uh, you know, your music isn't for the faint of heart. It's well, not easy. Say. It's challenging. You know, and the, the ironic thing is, if like a Carbon record can, had come out in 1968, it would have been on the radio, top 40 radio. Because <laughs> some of those pieces are very common. I wrote them to be catchy. Yeah. You know, like the the record um, Toxin, the piece Raptor. I mean, uh, that riff is a catchy riff. Right. And uh, there's actually been cover versions of it, which I was gratified. No kidding. Wow. But, uh, you know, the thing is, as the music business became more and more boxy and the dissemination of music was left to accountants rather than to people who actually love the music. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't get started down that right. uh, road. <laughs> things. Um, I remember having a conversation with you, which I thought was interesting. We were talking about <clears throat> a couple of the uh, better known players in, in jazz and the way they approach the guitar. And you made the point that um, there was a style of guitar playing, though, was uh, you know, kind of wonderful in its own right, held no interest to you because there was no modulation of sound. It was kind of a flat tone right. that well, was the, always the same. The classic jazz thing. And also fusion, I think, ended up being... Fusion why, is that, why is that not attractive to you? What is it about it that you're seeking that's different? I, I, I mean, I like, I like colors, man. <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 you know, I'm often led off in directions. As I said, I like creative digression. And the idea of playing... Of course, there's a universe within melodic and harmonic improvisation playing on standards and you know someone like listen to Ted Green play that way and you know it's it's enlightening but it just it just isn't me I get bored with that style and with that sound I like a sound that's more visceral and more vocal than the guitar sound I can find that in a steel string acoustic 
but a jazz guitar, you know, strung with flat wound strings with a treble turned off, to me it just sounds like notes. Mm. When I hear Wes Montgomery play, that's a different story, you know, that he made it visceral, mm. but there's not many players, you know, in the jazz world that have the same touch that Wes had. I mean, yeah. he was a unique player that really had an incredible amount of freedom in his playing, and also the way, you know, he, he doesn't play super clean and articulated. It's, I mean, his notes have articulation, but he slurs a lot, you know, and, and that thumb technique causes the notes to have like a this kind of burly richness that mm. most guitarists don't have. Yeah. You know, he, 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 other guitarists, they may have more accuracy or more technique, but yeah. know, there's not many that have as much soul as he does. So true. So we've got this event coming up um, on May 9th, and you're part of that, and I uh, titled the the Alternative Guitar Summit Night on May 9th, Beauty and Noise. Mm -hmm. And I'd like you to give us a little preview, or verbal and musical, of, of what you're gonna do that night. And, and just so our listeners know, this is a night where six guitarists who um, all share a certain appreciation for the guitar as a sound-making device sure. with or without notes and who are exploring textures and colors uh, and a, a sonic palette that's uh, extravagant and outside the norm are all coming together. And so, uh, obviously, this is uh, home, home base for you. What's your... Talk, talk to us about what you're well, going to do. I haven't decided what I'm going to do. Chances oh, okay. are... Chances <laughs> are I, I have been, because I've been a little bit busy, chances are I'll bring one of the eight strings and some pedals. I work a lot with the Eventide uh, pitch factor and time factor, the boomerang looper. I work a lot with Evo. I could, I'll play a little Evo thing, because that is something that I've loved since it first came out. He should have gotten the Nobel Prize for that. Great heat. <laughs> really, it changed the world, you know, the Evo. Yeah. And... Uh, Maybe I'll bring an acoustic guitar, I don't know. Not a nylon string, though. I probably won't bring a nylon string. <laughs> I love the nylon string. I've used it, you know, sometimes uh, working on a film score, you get asked to make something that sounds like classical guitar, you know. Right. And it's fun. It's a beautiful thing, but it's not something that comes from a deep place of mine. I like electricity, and, and I like steel strings. I, the steel string, because there's so much snap, there's so many harmonics in the initial transient, you can get some of that quality of the, the vocality in a steel string guitar that I don't get in an nylon. And I've but seen you play National Steel, and that's been enlightening. Yeah, well, it's a great time. You know, guitarists always like to be loud, and the National Steel was the first. <laughs> yeah. Amplified, unamplified guitar. Exactly. And we'll also have David Torn that night, and you collaborated with David Torn and Vernon Reed yeah, in a project had, in the 90s? Yeah, trio, Guitar Oblique. And that was fun. We had some really fantastic gigs and gigs that weren't. And we had a great time hanging out with each other. And I mean, I've known Torn for many years, since 1972. And uh, he was one great person, great musician, you know. Yeah. So uh, maybe we'll close with just another another bit of playing. You've got yeah. that eight string. And uh, yeah, let me get let's, let's, uh, let's hear some more improvising. All right.